So today, uh, we're going to conclude the first part of our series on Philippians. We're going to step aside for the season of Lent uh, and Easter, and then we're going to return to Philippians afterwards, where we're going to consider and we're going to take up what does the life, uh, what does a life look like living in light of and living beyond the resurrection of Christ. Our series now is titled Joyful Living. And in light of that title, I want you to be mindful that we're not talking about a life that is devoid of struggle when we talk about joyful living. Um, We're not talking about a life that does not have or experience sadness or discouragement. These things, sadness, discouragement, um, difficulty, they're all common in our experience for various reasons. But I do want us to know that what, what it is that we experience of those things are not our destiny. Those are not the destiny for those who are in Christ Jesus. The, the joy of the Lord is our strength. And it's a strength that can be accessed by faith in Christ. Right? Even when you're not feeling the joy, you can live in confidence that you have for yourself a joy that is unshakable and will one day at least never wax or wane as it does in our experience today, uh, you know, in this life. We have an unshakable joy that is secured for us by the finished work of Jesus. Now in Philippians chapter 2, Paul has directed the Philippians' attention to the glory of a worthy life and the majesty of Jesus Christ's glory. Right, the one who stepped down from heaven um, and became a man. And today, Paul is going to apply that reality, the reality of who Jesus is, into a Christian's specific or particular circumstances. And in Philippians 2, 12 to 18, Paul shows us, um, and he shows the Philippians, uh, what it means, one, to live in salvation. What does it mean to live in salvation? To how to work that salvation out. And before Anna Norman comes forward to read the passage, let me pray for us. Would you join your hearts with mine? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, that you have given us words upon which we might anchor our soul, um, to which we might hold on to and promise um, that we have a word made flesh uh, to whom we want to be able to see um, the risen Lord Jesus. So, Lord, send your spirit to help us to hook into the promises um, and help us to see the glorious one in whose name we pray and ask these things. Amen. The sermon text this morning is from Philippians 2, 12 through 18. Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as the lights in the world holding fast to the word of life, 
so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you, should all, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of God. Okay. Thank you, Anna. So firstly, how is it that you live in your salvation? Paul's drawing a conclusion from what he's previously written. In light of the way in which Jesus has humbly submitted himself to God's plan, so too should the Philippians not fracture under the pressure and persecution and internal conflict that they're going through, right? But they are to especially do so since Paul cannot come to them. Paul instructs them to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, Working out your salvation, what does that mean? Some view this working out of salvation as something that is done merely as an individual's expression of living by faith, right? That you working out your salvation as you trusting in Jesus and you are doing that. And that's, that's true in part, but the use in the passage, if you'll note it, they're all in the second person plural, it's work out y'all's salvation. Um, in light of that fact, right, the letter is written to a church that is experiencing trouble. They're working out their salvation is not working works to add to their salvation. That's the, that's the first way in which we can err. But living together in such a way that their salvation is evident in the manner of life that they are living together, not only as individuals, but corporately, right? We, we can trip ourselves up if we think that working out our salvation um, is that we're adding to or completing the salvation work that Jesus has secured, right? That's not, that's not how we're working out our salvation. Working out our salvation is not a faith plus works way of securing your capital S salvation, and neither is it merely something that you are accomplishing or pursuing individually. Paul isn't saying, he's not saying to the Philippians, come on, y'all, figure it out. Work it out. Figure it out. Because he says something more. The key to understanding what it is that he means is in the next phrase, in fear and trembling. Fear and trembling is the language of a heart laid bare before God. In some instances, fear and trembling describes a person that has been stripped of every pretense and every self-confidence, you know, whether it's self-confidence or confidence in others. And we find an example of that. If you look through fear and trembling in the Bible, you find a couple of uh, great examples that help kind of flesh it out a little bit. One is when David in Psalm 55 says this, my heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me and horror overwhelms me. And I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove, I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. I would hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind and tempest. 
Or you might even think more personally here of what's going on in Philippi and what has happened in Philippi when Paul and Silas are worshiping in the jail in the midst of an earthquake. And they're unafraid. And the, and the Philippian magistrate, right, they're unafraid of what the Philippian magistrate could do. They're unafraid of the, the earthquake itself. And the, and the jailer comes in, he calls for the lights, he rushes in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Or Mark 5 is another example. When the woman who reached out and touched Jesus' robe, and Jesus called out to ask who had touched him, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, that she had been healed, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. A heart laid bare. Now for Paul, particularly, this speaks of his own experience. Right? When he writes to the Corinthians, he reminds them in 1 Corinthians, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And then when he sends Titus to visit Corinth, in 2 Corinthians 7, he says, and his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. Now, if you've read the Corinthian letters, um, you can imagine that they were a group of people who could humble somebody. Um, and this is a major part of what fear and trembling is. And what it means, fear and trembling means something more than just afraid and cowering. It's, it's, a, it's, a, um, it's the description of a life that is on the cusp. They're on the cusp of crumbling or on the cusp of worshiping and experiencing the presence of God. Revelation 2 contains letters written to the Asian churches that are now on the coast of, moder of modern-day Turkey. And in his book, his letter, John relates um, this glorious picture of the risen Jesus Christ who walks among the lampstands. And those lampstands represent the churches to whom he is writing. Now, many people come to church, they come to a church thinking that they're here to conjure something. Um, to evoke a feeling, to be inspired, to inspire, um, to inspire effort, to raise a spirit so that all can feel something and maybe convince other people to show up and do something, maybe one another or the Lord. Now, if John, what John shows us is true, what if, we, what if we believe that Jesus doesn't need to be conjured, right, like uh, the witch of Endor did for King Saul so that Samuel might appear before him? What if Jesus was really present wherever there were two or three gathered in his name? You see, Jesus doesn't need conjuring. He has already said that he is present. And that being the case, how should we respond or think about our petty demands, our critical spirit, our insider and outsider cliques? 
Do you think that if Jesus is in the presence of his people, he's going to allow that to continue? Right, we think, we think sometimes, you know, if Jesus um, were seated beside me, I'd be a better person, right? But that's the point, right? He is in your midst. Not only that, he is even in your heart. Now, you think about that, that, that should lead you to a place of fear and trembling, if you're rightly apprehending what that means. Now, that could lead you, though, <laughs> that could send you off another path where it sends you to a place of dread. You feel so guilty, you're so ashamed of what you've done, your guilts, right, your failures, fear and trembling. Fear and trembling, you say? I can't even, I can't, med, I can't conjure, <laughs> I can't get the courage to get up out of bed. Why even try? You imagine I fear and I tremble so much, I can't even imagine my life being worse. Or you say, I can't fear and tremble enough to make myself feel like I'll ever be of any, there'll be ever be any possibility of me getting it right. And both of those are missing the point. It's likely to, and especially here, that drawing he's that Paul is drawing his inspiration from the song of the Lord's anointed in, in Psalm 2. Psalm 2.11 reads, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Right, so you may be afraid, you may be shaking in your boots, but do you do so rejoicing? See, there's something different that Paul is talking about here. Right? How can I continue to be confident in my reverence and the attention to which I give to God when, when my circumstances look like a train wreck around me? They're all going in a different direction from where it is that I had hoped. And Paul says that the confidence to continue in working out your salvation with fear and trembling is verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. That is, God's will is being done through the difficult circumstances, by the difficult circumstances, against the intent of the circumstances, in spite of the appearances of the circumstances. God's purpose is to redeem and to bless, and they are not going to be thwarted by our circumstances. Right? His pleasure is not your difficulty. Hear that. His pleasure is not your difficulty. His pleasure is fulfilling his promises to you over and against the difficulties. Over and against everything our enemy could throw at us. Or what our flesh would seek to undermine in us. Or what our sins would testify against us about. Our job is to live a life being filled and reformed after the likeness of Christ is pictured in that previous hymn that we talked about last week and, and earlier in chapter 2. And if Christ, right, in his becoming man, he descends to the lowest place and is obedient to death and that that is part of his glory, shall we not go with him by humbling ourselves and considering the needs of others? 
right? For that matter, if Christ has been lifted up and raised, exalted to the highest place, will we be left behind? No, we will be exalted with him. Our hope is not in this life only. Paul, Paul wants his Philippian friends to have the long view on what it is that they're enduring and facing. Right? He's sharing with them the mind of the one who is working out their salvation. He's showing them the mind of the person who is working out their salvation and who does so in fear and trembling. And then he points them to the manner of life of the one who lives that way. So what does working out your salvation look like? How do you work it out? Paul points the Philippians to three things which characterize everything that they are to be doing. Do all things, he says, this way. Firstly, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may become blameless and innocent children of God. Now, the words grumbling and complaining aren't merely, you know, simmer down, be quiet, stop whining, don't grumble and complain or argue. It's filled with meaning through the events of the Old Testament. Right, especially Israel's exodus and sojourn in the wilderness as they are awaiting their entry into the promised land. Can you, can you hear their grumbling and complaining? Were there not enough graves in Egypt that you had to bring us out here into the desert to die? Are we expected to live day by day by eating only manna? We're tired of waiting on Moses. We want a party. We want to worship. There's no water. Have we come to the desert only to die of thirst? Give us water. Give us meat. We can't go up into the land. There are giants there. Right? It, it wasn't that things were difficult and it wasn't that they vocalized that things were difficult, that they were afraid, that they were hungry, and that they were thirsty. Moses tells the people in Exodus 16, he says this, And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what, what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and the morning bread to, full, to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumbled against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. This is why Paul is redirecting the Philippians. Because grumbling and complaining turns quickly from grumbling and, and, and complaining about circumstances um, to accusations against God. I don't, we don't, maybe you don't. You don't complain against the sin which tempts you to faithlessness. I don't grumble and complain against my flesh which is so easily awakened and rises up and pushes me towards self-reliance and self-strength. I don't complain against the enemy who accuses and seeks to devour me. We direct our complaints to the king to the one who made himself nothing for our sake, right? If we turn on the one who did save us and can presently save us, what hope do we have 
of joy. So that's the first, grumbling and complaining, right? Do everything without grumbling and complaining. Second thing, Paul directs the Philippians in that they're work to, they're to work out their salvation. They are to do those things so as to be unblemished in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. There's not much activity to being unblemished and shining. Right? There's not a triumphal victory that goes along with that. Enemies are not defeated and brought cowering to your feet. It all feels, if I think about it, rather passive and detached. Right? The, the world throws mud and extinguishes lights. But we are not to be drawn into the mudslinging, into the darkness spreading life. We are to be lights, cosmic lights. We are to be a people of contrasts by which the world recognizes and is able to distinguish the difference between that which is birthed by the Holy Spirit and that which is generated by the flesh. We're to shine like stars. And thirdly, you're to do these things holding fast to the word of life. Holding fast isn't merely holding to the right teaching. It is that. But holding fast is holding fast to the promise of hope that's contained in it. it it's both the word by which the way of life is made known to us, but it is also the word by which we have life. It is bread that feeds and nourishes us. Holding fast means never letting go. Right? Let go of what you think your circumstances are saying and hold fast to the word of life. Let go of the accusations of shame and failure and hold fast to the word of life. Let go of trying to reconcile all the ethical conflicts that are played out in the world and hold fast to the word of life. Paul is telling the Philippians that their efforts, right, on Paul's behalf, for Paul's own circumstances, those efforts are not the end. The end is holding fast. It will not matter, he says, if his life is poured out as a sacrifice for them. That will not mean that their efforts or that his efforts were pointless. In the end, Paul says, they will all be full and Paul will be rejoicing. And Paul says, regardless of how things play out, this is it, even if, even if I am glad and you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Right? As we consider right, living in the midst of our circumstances, we've got to remember that our joy is not bound up in them. Our joy is bound to and kept safe by the Son of Man, right? our Lord Jesus Christ, who took into the grave the sting of death and who was raised for our justification. His life means our life. His joy cannot be taken from us, and we must not 
let it be taken from us by turning back to what Paul says in Colossians, are weak and miserable principles. There are two examples that I just want to finish with to just kind of give you some words to, to meditate on and to hold on to aside from these words here in Philippians. Um, the, first, the first instance is when Nehemiah and Ezra, who told the people um, you know, who were gathered together to celebrate um, the fall festival, the, the, the festival of Sukkot, the, the Feast of Booths, Right? They were all swallowed by their regret of what had been lost. All that had been suffered and was being born. Right? They'd returned from exile. They were here to celebrate this great celebration. And they just saw how it didn't measure up to what they had been told it was like before. And the people wept as if all had been lost. Yet Ezra and Nehemiah, they, they, they were told, go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet wine and send portions to everyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord, and do not be grieved. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. In another psalm, um, in Psalm 126, we have this experience of God's people who are remembering a day of salvation. They're looking back on the day of salvation and what it was like to experience deliverance. And they're, they're looking to that in the midst of their present difficulty, right? They're wanting that to be now and they can't see it. And in Psalm 126, it reads this, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. And then there's a turn. Restore our fortunes. Right? Do it again. Oh Lord, like streams in the Negev, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice, as Paul says, even if. Right? There have been times, there will be times when we will sow in tears. But because our joy is kept safe for us, if we will hold fast, we shall reap shouts of joy. 